Good morning again. I'm excited to introduce our storyteller for the, this morning. And just if you're new here and you're wondering, what is this storytelling thing about? Each week we have a storyteller come up, somebody from the congregation, to just tell us some kind of story from their life. And it helps us connect to each other better and get to know each other in a way that we uh, can't just hear on Sunday mornings or in other uh, times. So I'm going to introduce Don Wong. Come on up, Don. He's going to tell us a story, and my kids think Don is so cool because he has met Bruce Lee. Just to let you know, I'm a lover, not a fighter. So, um, By the way, happy Father's Day to all of you fathers out there. Um, you know, when I was asked to do this, actually my wife was asked to do this first, and I, I thought I'd better intervene and talk to Pastor Peter, because I like my version rather than hers to be said. <laughs> uh, let her do it later. Anyway, um, they only give you five or six minutes. That's what they say. So I thought I'd better write it down, because I'll probably get distracted and, and just ramble on. So I'm going to read this. and. Um, so put up with me, I have a little cold or allergies and I'm coughing a little bit, so here we go. If you've lived a relatively long life like I have, and I won't tell you exactly how many years, this is more information than you need to know, except that Julie asked all the fathers to stand who were over a certain age and, and I had to stand up, unfortunately, so that kind of gives it away. Uh, you've gone through many life experiences, some wonderful, some not so wonderful, and some very challenging. But if you look back, and oftentimes it takes, a, it takes you a hard look to do this, invariably you see God's hand through all of it. Of course, there's not enough time to go into my whole life story, thank goodness for you. But I do want to give you a glimpse of something more current that demonstrates just how faithful God was to me. Like some of you, I married my childhood sweetheart. Her name is Sharon, who many of you knew, a wonderful woman with whom I spent over 50 years. Five of those years was dating, and, uh, and a marriage that lasted over 45 years, which seems like a long time, but for people of our age, those years went by in a flash. Unexpectedly, cancer took her from me, although I know she's with the Lord, so that's a comfort for me. But losing a spouse, a parent, sibling, or child is probably the hardest thing to endure in life. The transition was very difficult for me, but having wonderful family and church support through my small groups did help. But the many times I was alone at home, it was still very hard. Um, now instead of coming home to a warm, uh, comforting sanctuary and a loving wife, which greatly softened the demands and stresses of life, I ended up staring at four walls and eating a microwave dinner. We were both looking ahead to retirement, or at least having more free time for each other, but life doesn't always go according to our plans, which is why we need to rely on, the, on God for our lives, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 states, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Good advice, but hard to consistently put into practice throughout our lives. So I ended up crying at times, uh, missing, and I don't cry easily, but this was a very, very difficult time for me personally, and uh, missing Sharon tremendously, uh, but also yelling at God. What did she, you know, why did she have to die? 
As the months passed, I began to talk to God more as a friend again, uh, starting to adjust to my new normal. I remember saying to God that it was okay for me to be alone and uh, that I could, uh, I could survive on my own. But if it's in your will that I find somebody to share the rest of my life with, a woman who loves the Lord, that would be my preference and choice. I think that having a wonderful marriage with Sharon allowed me to open, to be open to another relationship. As a year plus passed, my younger sister, then my younger sister asked me, uh, and she looked in on me on a regular basis, so she really was a caring, caring, loving younger sister. She asked if I was ready and or willing to go out again, or to start seeing people at least. And she then gave me uh, a number of women names uh, I could call, but I really wasn't interested. And one of those women, this is not written down, but she happened to be married. And I said, well, that's not going to work. And uh, she said, well, she's separated. And I said, no, I can't do that. Um, up until then, my good friend Ross Lehman was my regular companion. And many of you know Ross. What a wonderful, wonderful human being and a, a wonderful Christian. Going, into, going to the fitness center together for a workout, going out to lunch, using a two-for-one coupon. We were both pretty cheap, so we would we'd always, always try the cheap way to find lunch, and we'd share that lunch together, or taking walks together. I hadn't really seriously thought about going out or even how to go about it, and didn't want to go through a dating service. If it was going to happen, it would have to be God-orchestrated. Well, a few more months passed when I ran into a longtime high school uh, woman friend whom I rarely see. She is also a Christian. She knew Sharon, and she knew that uh, she had passed away the previous year. We went through the normal pleasantries, and then she asked uh, if I was going out at all or if I was interested in entertaining the thought. Uh, she then mentioned that she recently met a retired school teacher who had relocated from Hawaii and that she was Japanese and also a Christian. If I was interested, uh, she could get her phone number, so I said, let me think about it. As I considered contacting this person, I thought that this might be a possibility in terms of someone to go to dinner with or to, uh, to having a, a friend to do things with, as going out alone was just not very fun for me. I was just used to having a supportive companion to share life with, like many of you. A few weeks later, I asked for the number and got the courage to call this lady, but she proceeded to put me off and uh, saying that she was in the process of preparing a Chinese New Year dinner for her sister's family and therefore wouldn't be available for the next two weeks. Does that make any sense to you? <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, what kind of excuse is this? What's a Japanese woman doing making a Chinese New Year dinner anyway, and as a result, can't go out for the next two weeks? Sounded like a pretty lame excuse. But I finally concluded, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So after the two weeks passed, me and my fragile ego decided to try again and called her. But if she said no this time, that was it. Uh, you have to realize that I hadn't dated for over 45 years, so it's something I was out of practice doing. However, she was much more receptive uh, this time around and almost immediately ac accepted uh, the invitation to go out. Not knowing what to expect, I hadn't planned anything. So when she said yes and proceeded to ask when I wanted to go out and where we were going, I had, uh, I had no clue what to say. <laughs> this, this was Friday night. 
So thinking fast, I quickly said, how about tomorrow morning? I still didn't have any place to go, but I, I, I made the date. And uh, as it turned out, I took her to the Wing Luke Museum. I give tours there on a, a part-time basis. And so it was pretty uh, no-brainer to go there since it was free admission, right? <laughs> um, so things didn't turn out. It was a cheap date. As it turned out, the museum was a perfect first date. Okay, she has that Asian history and that's what we concentrate our focus on there. However, I didn't know about this woman's healthy appetite and, the, and she politely let me know that she would really enjoy a good dim sum lunch, which can be uh, fairly expensive uh, <laughs> if they have a good appetite. So I thought about that too. Anyways, we thoroughly enjoyed each other's company and could just be ourselves with each other as I was too old to be anything else on a date or any other situation. Her name is Becky, and you would think that that's short for Rebecca, but the given name is Elizabeth, but her father didn't like the shortened name of Beth, so she was nicknamed Becky. Uh, being from Hawaii, she's a fast worker, so in only four months from our first date, we were married here at Evergreen Covenant Church on June 10th. We're just celebrating our first anniversary this last Sunday. Thank you. Um, this may seem serendipity, but as it turned out, Becky had first arrived in Seattle on November 23rd, 2016, I think it was. And that's my birthday. So that was very, very unusual. And uh, we thought we learned about that later. So I think God really uh, planned this whole, out, this whole thing out from the beginning. Only by the faithfulness of God Thank you for listening to my story. Becky, come on up, honey. So, and I, I really want to thank all of you. She's been really made to feel welcome here. And I'm not fast. So, she's, uh, so I thank all of you for that. She, she, this is her church home now, and she feels very, very warmly welcomed and part of this church family. So thank you so much for that. All right. So thank you for listening to our story. This morning's uh, scripture reading is from the book of Acts, and please follow along in your Bible or use the screens above. I'll be reading verses 1 to 10 from Acts chapter 3 in the New International Version. Okay. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had, hap what had happened to him. 
the word of the Lord. This morning, I'd like to introduce our guest speaker today, uh, James Amadon. James has been a covenant pastor for, I'll just say, many years. He was a pastor in Salem and then the last 10 years at Highland Covenant in Bellevue. And James uh, left, it was just a year ago now, right, uh, to uh, become the director of Circlewood, which is a uh, ministry organization that is... Um, uh, moving us forward and integrating our faith with caring for God's creation. He's going to tell us a little more about that in his sermon, but um, I just want to welcome James up here. He's, uh, he's a great guy, so don't scare him off, okay? Be really nice to him. Um, James, come on up, and he's going to share with us from God's Word from the book of Acts, and hopefully stay after for a piece of pie or something today, huh? All right. Uh, thank you for having me here this morning. It's a real pleasure to be with you and to share in God's Word. Uh, thank you for the kind welcome. I was thinking about that uh, little contest about Father's Day, and I'm a father of three, a uh, 14-year-old girl, a 10-year-old boy, and a 4-year-old boy. And uh, it kind of got my competitive juices flowing a little bit. So I think I'm going to go home and say, Emily, for Father's Day, can you get me more children? We've got to win this thing. Uh, but actually, their gift to me today is to uh, bless me to come here and preach. Uh, one of the things I have loved about being a pastor is preaching, and that was a hard thing to step away from and pursue a, a different vocational direction. So any chance I get to preach uh, is a real blessing to me, and I'm thankful for their blessing on me as I come with you today. I've also been thinking about my own father, uh, a wonderful man. Uh, who has formed me in so many ways, including in my faith. Uh, but it wasn't all uh, serious with my dad. I can remember, uh, you know, one of the things I love to do with my dad is go on car trips with him when he was going somewhere in town. And I can remember a day where he was going out to the car and I was outside playing. And I said, Dad, Dad, uh, can I come with you? Can I come with you? And he was like, sure, yeah, yeah, come on, let's go. So we got in the car, I buckled up, and he drove into the garage where he was parking the car. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. He's been a wonderful dad to me. I also have a wonderful father-in-law. I'm, I'm blessed with uh, wonderful in-laws. Uh, they used to live here on Mercer Island, and this was their church. So uh, this is uh, returning for me. When we used to visit them here on the island, this is where we would come to worship. And uh, on Christmas Eve of 1999, we were with them celebrating the holiday and came here to worship and were recruited for the Build-A-Pageant. <laughs> I was uh, 22 years old, newly married, and Emily and I were Mary and Joseph, <laughs> recruited for that pivotal role in front of a group of strangers. <laughs> uh, but it was really wonderful, and uh, my niece, Emma, had just been born, and so she was baby Jesus. So we were all dressed up, and we carried her in right here, and Pastor Bud was reading the story, and we had the, the uh, cradle ready the, up here, the manger with the straw, and uh, he looked at us and said, now, you know, put baby Jesus in the straw, and uh, not having much experience with babies and looking at the rickety manger, wasn't sure this was a good idea, but he kind of nodded, so we did that, and at that point, all the angels rushed in to see baby Jesus. All the children came around, and the manger kind of wobbled, but it held. 
And uh, one of the angels looked at, looked at the baby and said, that's not Jesus, that's Emma. You know, I took that Build-A-Pageant idea back with me at the time to Salem when we did it there. And when I moved up to Bellevue to pastor Highland Covenant Church, we did it there. And people who saw that took it to their churches, and that Build-A-Pageant idea spread and spread. It was like a little movement, a little Build-A-Pageant movement. And as I thought about that memory and was reading uh, the scriptures for today, and the section, we read from the section that I've been studying uh, but Acts chapter 3 to Acts chapter 7, it's really all about a movement. It's all about a movement, what God was doing. And I think we can understand that because we live in a culture of movements. There are movements going on all over the place, whether we're talking about political movements. You can think a few years ago to the rise of the Tea Party that started as a movement. Uh, you can think about all the social movements that have happened, Black Lives Matter or the current Me Too movement. Our own church, the Covenant Church, started as a movement within the State Church of Sweden. And even right now, there's a movement going on within the Covenant called For More. And that's a movement that's attempt, attempting to uh, encourage churches to have more women preachers. And to, to see how many women preachers you have in the year, in, over the course of a year and add just four more to help uh, give uh, women a chance to preach in all our Covenant churches. That's a movement and a movement is simply an intentional effort to change an entrenched system or institution. There's something going on that people think needs to be changed, so they start a movement. And all movements are a little chaotic. And they usually, sometimes they center around a charismatic person or a charismatic group. And when they really get going, they produce conflict. They're chaotic, charismatic, and conflictual. That is the early church. The early church was essentially a movement, the Jesus movement, a movement within Judaism. People had said, we found the Messiah. God is on the move, doing something different. And in fact, when it got a little steam, people just referred to it as the way. Oh, your people, you're part of the way. How much more movement can you get than that? I'm part of the way. And the book of Acts is simply the book of scripture that really captures the early uh, history of that movement. And if you remember Jesus, one of the last things he says to the disciples is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, ends of the earth. That is the description of a movement, a movement that was meant to grow and expand. And yes, it was chaotic. Yes, it was charismatic. And yes, it produced conflict. And when we look at this early uh, chapter in the church's history, and if, when we look at these chapters in Acts 3 to 7, we see that movement beginning to grow and expand and come into conflict with the existing system and institution. And I think when we do that this morning, it has a lot to teach us, a lot to teach us about what it means to be part of the Jesus movement today, people of the way. So the first thing that happens, which was read so wonderfully, the first thing that happens is that Peter, James, Peter and John go up to the temple to pray. The movement is still small. It's all Jewish, and it's centered in Jerusalem. And as good Jews, they're going to the temple regularly to pray. You can't get much more institutional than that. It's 3 o'clock, time to go to the temple and pray. 
every day, just like that, over and over again. That's the way it was. That's what you did if you were a faithful Jew. And there were some faithful friends of a man who was lame, who carried him to the temple gate called Beautiful, outside of the temple and put him down so he could beg. Part, also part of tradition, the way things were, so that good faithful Jews who were coming to pray in the temple could dig into their pockets, give them a little change, and help them on their way. But when Peter and John come by this man, set there by the gate called Beautiful, they have an encounter that is much more about a movement than an institution, much more about how God was about to do something different than doing the same old thing. And when that lame man, with his head bowed, just holding up his hand, asking for a few coins, when they encounter him, they offer him much more than money, something deeper. Gold and silver, I don't have any of that. But what I have, I will give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And this is the story was just read, we know. His feet and ankles become strong, and he gets up and he starts walking and then leaping and praising God. It is an amazing moment. And here we see one of the first keys to how this was a movement that mattered, a movement that was going to grow and expand, is that it met deep human needs. Far more than just giving this person a handout, they gave him literally a hand up. And there he was, walking and leaping and praising God. And the key to this story is not actually the healing. The key to this story is the moment when they say, look at us. Raise your head, look us in the eye. What do you think that communicated to a man who had been brought day after day to a place outside of the temple, outside? What do you think it communicated to a man Who's, who literally begged by the gate called beautiful, whose life in some, some ways had been ugly. Look at me. Look at us. Just in that moment, it communicates inestimable worth to that man. And it's the beginning of his healing, even though the physical part comes later. Deep human need. They saw this man as a whole person and met his emotional, social, physical, and spiritual needs just in that one encounter. And that was a key to the movement because that's what Jesus had done for them. Now, of course, this attracted a lot of attention. And people gather around Peter and John. And in that crowd, Peter begins to preach and gives them a sermon straight out of the Old Testament even though God was doing something new, Peter was no radical. Peter was a traditionalist. Peter was a conservative. And here's a second key to why this was a movement that mattered and grew. It flowed from the very heart of faith, straight out of Scripture, straight out of what God had been preparing the world for from the moment he said, let there be light. This was what it was all about. It wasn't some new, strange thing. This was exactly what God had planned to do. And they'd lost their way, and they couldn't see it. And Peter's just saying, look, it's right there in front of your eyes, in Scripture, and in the life of this man who's walking and leaping and praising God, flowing right from the heart of faith. Now, you would think in that this encounter with the lame man, you would think that his walking and leaping and praising God would engender universal joy. But it didn't. Because what happened is what happens with every movement. 
As it grows, it begins to threaten those who are charged to protect the system. Those who are in power, whose job it is to make sure things stay the same. And so, as the crowd goes around them, flows around them, they get the attention of the priests and the temple guards and the Sadducees. Three groups in power there in the temple. And they don't like what they see. They see the chaos and they create the conflict. And so they put them in jail and they do what, all, what happens to all such encounters. They tell them, be quiet. You must be silent. You cannot go around doing this anymore. And the response in chapter 4, verses 20 says, Hey, you do what you need to do. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Which is the third key to this movement that matters and was changing the world. To challenge the status quo. Right there in the heart of national power. Right there in the temple. Hey, you do what you do. We're going to do what we need to do. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen or heard. And you know what? When they go home and they gather around with other people who were part of this movement, they pray together. And you know what they pray for? Not deliver us, whoa, not that was, oh, that was so scary. No, they pray for boldness and that God would do even more than what God had already begun. And it happens, which is why the movement continues to grow and expand and get more attention and get more conflict. As we move into chapter 5 of Acts, the movement grows and all the apostles are arrested again. And at night, there in the jail, an angel comes and frees them. Now, if this were you, I wonder what you would do. I wonder what I would do. Go home, escape, put your head down for a little while, take it easy, take the heat off a little bit. Maybe it's time to consult a lawyer and find out what your strategy is going to be with these folks. Not with the apostles. The very next morning, they're found in the temple doing the exact same thing they were arrested for. And again, they're told to be silent. When they're brought uh, in front of the authorities and told to be silent and to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, stop doing these things, this is their response now in chapter 5, verses 29. We must obey God rather than human beings. That's their defense. We must obey God rather than human beings. And instead of just being told to be silent, the consequences increased and they're flogged, beaten. Can you imagine that? Whipped and released. Now, what would you do? What would I do in this moment? Seek out the nearest clinic? Maybe take the heat off a little bit more? Hunker down? Wait it out? No, their response is to rejoice because they found worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus and they return right to doing the same thing. And this is another key to this movement, why it mattered so much, was changing people's lives, why it held within it the power to change the whole world is because it was full of people who were willing to suffer. They were willing to suffer. And that willingness demonstrated before all the people continued to fan the flames of that movement, and it grew and grew and grew there in Jerusalem. And when movements get too big, all of a sudden you need a little structure. All that chaos, all that conflict, 
all those charismatic gifts being used here and there, it can get a little out of hand, and all of a sudden you have internal problems. And that's what we encounter in chapter 6. Because you have this growing movement of people, and it was a multi-ethnic movement, and they were sharing possessions and bringing food in every day, and there was a daily distribution of food to all the widows that were part of this movement. All All the people who had lost all their family support all of that in that culture, and depended on this movement to get through the day. And in doing that, they discovered they had some ethnic prejudices, and that the widows who had a Greek heritage were being overlooked in favor of those who had a Hebrew heritage. So the apostles are called in, and they're trying to figure out what to do, and they they do this. We're going to appoint seven people who are going to take care of this to make sure everything's just and fair, and we're all on the same level here. And we're going to do this so that we can go out and keep spreading this movement. That's the goal. Which is another key. Any kind of structure that that early moment movement put in place was to serve the movement. It was meant to keep it going. And it does. The community functions smoothly again. There's justice back in the distribution of the food. The apostles are free to go out and talk about Jesus And more and more people come to belong as part of this Jesus movement. More and more people are part of the way, which means more and more authorities have their attention. And this thing is really becoming a problem to them. And then, so what do they do? They take one of the young men that was appointed to help lead the the congregation there, the people there, his name is Stephen. He was preaching and sharing about Jesus And somebody went and charged him with blasphemy, which is, again, what people do to movements when they begin to to be too threatening. They do character assassination. We see that all across our culture when people threaten people in power. Well, they won't be silent. Well, we punish them. They still won't stop. Let's demean their character. Let's tell everybody what a terrible person they are. And in Stephen's case, he's accused of blasphemy, arrested, and put on trial. And on his trial, he preaches this brilliant sermon. If you want to read it, just read Acts chapter 6. And it's just how, like his friend Peter preached, how this was all based in what God was doing all through the Old Testament. That's it. They weren't advocating anything radical, anything that's not there in Scripture. And he said a few harsh words that maybe offended them a little bit. But he was saying, you got to get on board. This is the movement that God is about. And then he said, I see Jesus seated at the right hand of God in power. And this was too much for them. This was blasphemy. The only option left to them at this point is to silence Stephen forever. And they execute him. They stone him to death. Now, why would Stephen continue to preach with a threat like that hanging over his head? This is the next key to this movement that matters. Is Stephen, along with all those early members of the Jesus way, believed that Jesus changed everything. Everything. Even death. So he wasn't afraid. He could face it in faith because Jesus changed everything. And we see this early on in chapter 3 in Peter's sermon. In verse 21, he talks about how Jesus is in heaven now until he says the time comes for God to restore everything. All things whether it's personal, social, or ecological. The whole earth was going to be transformed because of what Jesus had done. They believed that Jesus changed everything. 
So how do we hear this today? The question for us today, I think, is this. Are we still a movement that matters? You know, as the church grew and grew and grew over those first decades and into the first or second century, eventually it got so big it needed quite a bit of structure. That's when you see the rise of pastors and leaders and bishops and then statements of faith like the creeds. Movements have to be organized or else they just lose all their momentum. There absolutely has to be structure. There have, have to be those systems to maintain what the movement has accomplished. But think about where we are now, 2,000 years later. There's an awful lot of church structure out there. Enough church, church structure to support over 1,000 different denominations, all with its own different structure. And those structures are good and often serve movements well. But I think in our own culture, this is a point in time where we have reversed it and now the movement serves the structure. There are things that we do that are part of the status quo that no longer serve the movement and actually can get in the way of what Jesus is doing. I think what we have to pray hard about is how to recapture that movement. Or maybe as the great Blues Brothers said, remember that we're on a mission from God. That's what we're about. So today I invite us to reflect on these six keys. Keys to this movement that matters. And I want you to think about these six things personally in your own life, in the life of your family, and in the life of this church, Evergreen Covenant. And I want you to think about this today. Is, are we part of a movement that still is meeting deep human need? Treating people as whole persons made in the image of God. Now, there are some great ministries here at Evergreen, which I love. Things that you are doing in the local community, in the region, global ministries that you are attached to that are awesome, that are doing this exact thing. Keep it up and be part of it. And here's where I would like to encourage you, and me as well, is when we're part of these, when we meet people in need, whether that's a colleague at your work or somebody at the corner asking for change, can you look at them and invite them to look at you back? Can you invest in them personally? Can you make that human connection that says, you and I are the same in God's eyes? And you're meeting my need just as I'm meeting yours in this moment of encounter. When you do that, Jesus does amazing things. Brings about that healing that healed that man. Can you think about that man for a minute? Every day for the rest of his life, he's going to think about that gate in a different way. Because when Jesus helps us encounter someone in that way, it's a beautiful thing. Do we still meet deep human need and see people as whole people? How can we root the changes that we need in the heart of our faith, in scripture and tradition? You know, one of the things that our covenant church did in the 1970s was agree to begin ordaining women. And it wasn't just because culture said that was the fashionable thing to do, although culture pushed us a little bit. It was because we looked at that and went back to scriptures and said, you know what, we've made a mistake. That even though there are a handful of texts in scripture that seem to forbid that, overall the whole narrative of scripture overwhelmingly says women have gifts and they need to be used and we need to hear what they have to say and they can lead just as good as men. 
That's, it was rooted in the tradition. And there are so many, so many things that, that need to change about the church. Always the church is in need of reforming. What is it that you and I could study? What could you look in deeper and say, what is, it, what is it that's getting people all riled up about this or that? Why are they advocating for that change? Or what is it that you would love to see changed? And why do you think that ought to be changed? Can you study scripture and tradition and people who are wrestling with those topics? Number three, how much are we willing to challenge the status quo? That's a hard thing. Because systems have power and they don't like to be challenged. I don't like to be challenged. But sometimes it needs that person or that group to say, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. I think we've gone off course. And I have a way maybe to get us back on course. Can we consider this? It doesn't always have to devolve into harsh conflict. Sometimes it's just a kind word saying, can we think about this for a moment? Can we explore and ex experiment the way we're doing things as a family or as a church? Are you willing to challenge the status quo? Number four, are we still willing to suffer? Now, it's hard to hear that after a story like Stephen's, who, did, who offered the ultimate sacrifice and became a martyr. But sacrifices come on a spectrum, and martyrdom is a calling, not a demand. And Jesus asks all of us to simply look at our lives and say, what is it that I have to offer? And that could be giving up Starbucks for a year and taking that money and using it for something else. It could mean a lot of things. But here's the thing. When you're passionate enough about it, it ceases to be about suffering, and it becomes an offering. That's what Stephen did. He offered his life to God. We are all called to do that in different ways, if we're willing. Number five is, are we willing to structure our life and our churches to support the movement of God and not the other way around? This is one of the reasons I am so proud to be a covenanter, because we are a movement-based mission of churches. And a few years ago, I had the privilege of being invited into a group called Organizing for Mission. And we were brought uh, from around the country into Chicago, where the, the denominational headquarters are, to reformulate how the structure of our denomination. A huge task, uh, but a wonderful one. And it was about organizing for greater mission. And I remember when our covenant president, Gary Walter, looked at the group and said, here's what we're doing. We want our structure everything we do to support local churches in the mission work that they're doing on the front lines of the kingdom of God. That's pretty amazing. And what ended up happening is we reorganized the denomination into five missional priorities. We are probably the only uh, denomination whose central departments are verbs. And the five verbs are this. Our priorities are to serve globally, develop leaders, make disciples, love mercy and do justice, and start and strengthen churches. That's what they're called, action verbs. I love that. That's a wonderful thing. And I hope our local churches and our own lives can reflect that kind of thinking. Finally, do we believe that Jesus changes everything? Everything. This is the key to this early movement that propelled me into the work I'm doing now. 
as I worked as a disciple and as a pastor, I loved the way our churches focused on the personal dimensions of faith. I loved the way that we are inviting people into a personal relationship with Jesus. I love the way that we're reading scripture and remembering that Jesus not only spoke to individuals, but spoke to a whole society. I love the way that the Covenant Church has been about racial reconciliation, about gender equality, and all of these kind of wonderful things that are rooted in Scripture and about creating just and lasting social structures. But as I looked at that, I had this nagging sense that, you know, Jesus changes all that, but there's even more. And as I went back to Scripture, I began to see from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus was a, God in Jesus was about transforming the entire earth from that initial call to be caretakers and stewards, from that final image in Revelation where the heavenly Jerusalem comes down to a renewed heaven and a recreated earth that's all brought together under the lordship of Christ. I began to see that caring for creation was a central part of discipleship and a part of the movement that perhaps we haven't stressed enough. And God began to work in my life until I was able to say, I think this is a new direction for me, and step out of pastoral ministry into leading Circlewood. And if you want to hear more about what Circlewood is about, I do have some flyers and things, and you can talk to me afterwards. But as I close, I'm wondering, now six things is a lot to think about for one sermon. And we've gone over four chapters of Scripture. So in closing, I want you to just look at this list and think, is there just one thing, just one, that seems to touch your life today? that seems to speak in your spirit and get you a little bit energized or wondering, all of that, is there just one? And if there is, that might just be God speaking to you to do something about it in your life or in the life of this church, perhaps in the life of your family. And you need to be warned, it might lead to chaos. It might even lead to a little conflict. But God has given you gifts which in Greek is charisms, where we get charismatic. There is a charismatic seed in each and every single one of you that if you pursue this movement in God's mission, God will bring out those gifts and bless the world. And I guarantee it might feel like a sacrifice, but like that lame man, it will lead to joy. It will lead to new life. It will lead to walking and leaping and praising God the God who is always on the move. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning, for a chance to worship you in song and prayer and together to look at your word. We welcome your Holy Spirit at this moment to speak to each one of us, to move, to plant seeds, so that we may continue to be part of this movement that is indeed changing everything. To the glory and praise of your name, amen.